Hello, everyone. You're listening to Asides, the Kalshiks podcast, in collaboration with We Rise Production. This is Tiara Allen, Artistic Engagement Manager at Kalshiks. On July 9th, Kalshiks partnered with Kausahusta Just Cause to host a community meal and civic dialogue called Is Capitalism Killing Us? inspired by our production of The Good Person of Sichuan. Here's the conversation. Uh, my name is SK. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm the artistic producer here at Cal Shakes. I'm going to do a couple announcements, and then we're just going to get started. Um, I'd love to kick it off and take a moment to acknowledge the land on which we gather is the ancestral home of the Chochenyo-speaking Ohlone people. We strongly recommend that non-Indigenous folks living on this land check out the Sogorate Land Trust and um, look into contributing an annual um, Shumi land tax to support Sogorate's work to facilitate the return of Chochenyo and Karkin Ohlone lands in the San Francisco Bay Area to indigenous leadership. We've got a lot of folks here in housing rights, so I'm sure folks are pretty familiar with that, but um, down to give more information on where to find out more about the Shumi land tax. Just a couple more things. Shout out to folks in the house. We've got Kausa Husta, Just Cause, and is it tenants together as well? Yes. All right, yeah. Okay, I'm just gonna read the Cal Shakes EDI statement. What's EDI? The, the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion statement, which goes like this, and then I'll pass it off. At Cal Shakes, we believe that equity is a practice. Our actions, both on stage and off, can have a positive social impact by exposing oppression, addressing historic injustices, and showing how power can be transformed and shared in different ways. We endeavor to dismantle systemic bias by actively including, reflecting, and creating opportunities for our diverse Bay Area communities. We recognize that this work is ongoing and often imperfect, but we are committed to facilitating respect for the many facets of the human experience. Cool. And with that, I'm going to pass it along to our MC for the night, Tiara Allen. Hi. Um, I definitely did not um, bill myself as an MC, so please um, adjust your expectations accordingly. Um, but hi, my name is Tiara Allen, and I am manager of artistic engagement here at Cal Shakes. It is my honor to be in space with you, to hold the space, and facilitate our evening. So um, this is a civic dialogue. Um, Calshake civic dialogues are public forums where we explore the intersections between theater, community concerns, equity, and justice. This dialogue is inspired by the play that hopefully most, if not all of you are gonna see afterwards, um, Bertolt Brecht's The Good Person of Szechuan. The play asks, in a world of haves and have nots, can a good person stay good as their fortunes rise? And in this dialogue, we're taking a step back from that question and asking, what are the conditions structuring our lives that prevent us all from thriving? Is capitalism killing us? The stakes of this conversation are as high as it gets. So I thank each of you for being here today. I invite us to meet this opportunity for learning and sharing with our best selves, with receptive hearts and critical thinking, with good faith questions and deep listening. Please take care of yourselves and your community through this conversation. Take breaths, take breaks, get food, get water. And so I'm honored to open with an offering from Amy Suzara. Amy is a Filipino-American poet, playwright, and performer who has graced stages nationally with her dynamic spoken word. Her plays, A History of the Body and Tiny Fires, were selected as finalists for the Bay Area Playwrights Festival. Her mission is to create and help others create poetic and theatrical work about race, gender, and the body to provoke dialogue and social change. Let's welcome and thank Amy. 
Hi everybody. This is a really beautiful space. I am, I'm really enjoying this. Um, this is the fourth performance where I brought my son, my little baby right there, Isagani Ire. So I just have to give a shout out because he's been doing so good. And, and that's Tala, my friend Tala. So just a little preface, since this is a dialogue, you know, really for me, poetry is part of dialogue or is my mission for for my poetry is to help provoke dialogue so i love that this is a civic dialogue um, there are a few words in this poem called tiny fires that i want to define and um, the first one is boutique actually i'll have you repeat after me boutique um, so that's like a lizard um, butanding uh, that's like a whale shark I say like, I don't know why I said like, that is a whale shark. And tutubi, um, and that is a dragonfly. And um, those are referenced. And I have a special affinity to dragonflies, who I, which I feel represent perseverance, resilience, transformation, and beauty. Um, and you'll learn a little bit about their lifespan in this too. There's also a reference to Pandakan, which is a um, place in the Philippines where there's um, an oil uh, depot that is associated with Chevron and was has caused a lot of problems to the community in in in, uh, in the Philippine Manila. Um, I think that's it. Oh, and it used to be a place where Balagtasan, the the art of poetic debate, was born. So that's what I'm referencing too. Listen, we, butiki, slid bulbous bellies over smooth rocks. We, gentle butanding, turn the sea into milk. Now, Nestle carton bobs upon the, the fetid waters of the Pasig. Open sewers gape like torn bellies. Children hunt for metal parts and plastic sacks. Pandakan birds poets, but now it sits in the shadow of a fuel tank, ripe for disaster. Obtuse CEOs gaze down metallic towers, cursing shanty dwellers, clicking majong, kicking sipa, butchering pigs in the hell below. We, bloodstained tutubi, wings 30 feet span, could be seen drifting between storms and songs. We, 30,000 eyes, began with gills in the shallow edges of the river, could breathe underwater. I tell you this because the thing is happening and you may look upon your cracked sheaths and see a thing that you are not. You may call yourself John, Susan, Kate, wear Old Navy, smile when someone thinks you look like Brad, Jennifer, Angelina. You may tip cowboy hats, sling guns on hips, shift the gears of German sports cars, but one day the game is up. The ones who gave you compliments regard your eyes, detect your blood-stained wings pressing through your skin. This is why it is important that you listen and remember, we were not jars of talcum powder, not master creams and syringe serums cramming drugstore aisles, not teenage strippers in red light districts with faraway looks waiting for the Americano to take us home, not the Aita woman begging at the edge of the landfill where tiny methane fires light up the mountains of what the world has tossed away. We, Butiki, we, Butanding, we, Tutubi could breathe underwater. Thank you. So um, I guess just as a little bit of just commentary, since I, which is uh, I, since it's a dialogue, people can ask me questions actually. But I, I know I'm not. My time is short. But um, thank you for this. is an older poem. It's been a while since having baby to perform. So there's a couple moments where I was like, oh.
it's been a moment. But uh, yeah, so I just, f I think that this poem, I chose it to link in with a conversation because, you know, I write a lot about, I've actually my play Tiny Fires is about scavengers living at the edge of a landfill. So I took that image and I wrote a whole thing because to me, people living in landfills, literally living uh, on the landfills and surviving in this condition is the result of global capitalism and uh, in the case of the Philippines, colonialism, militarism. And so, but the fact is that people, people survive and people have lives and, and loves and, and families living in this way, in waste, the waste of the, of the world in some ways. So anyway, I, I appreciate, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Let's give a lot of appreciation to Amy for that. And we're going to jump in. This is actually a fishbowl style conversation, and everyone is an active participant. So folks at the picnic table are actively sharing, and the folks who are around us are actively listening. And I'm going to introduce the folks who I've invited to share in this circle today. To my left is Ronald Flannery. Ronald is an organizer of Vietnamese descent from the majority white working class town of Lewiston, Maine. He studied English at the University of Maine before moving to Germany for a master's program in global political economy focused on austerity regimes, ideological change, and social movement building. Ronald went on to lead the Healthcare is a Human Right campaign aimed at winning an equitably financed universal healthcare system. Since 2017, he has organized for development without displacement across the Bay Area through campaigns to create affordable housing and tenant protections like rent control and just cause. Let's give some snaps. And moving right along across from me, Anjali Lin Nath Upadhyay is academically trained as a political scientist, philosopher, and educator. Her activism has encompassed graduate student collective bargaining, prison abolition, earth defense, anti-war organizing, and more. Anjali is the founder of Grassroots Adult Freedom School Liberation Spring and the podcast Feral Visions, and upon invitation has taught courses in women's studies at San Diego State University, in political science at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and in the Graduate Department of Philosophy and Religion at California Institute of Integral Studies. She holds a master's degree in political science from the University of Hawaii at Manoa with specializations in indigenous politics and political theory, and a graduate certificate in international cultural studies. She also holds a master's degree from the oldest women's studies department in the US, San Diego State University. She double majored in women's studies and political science with a minor in philosophy at Cal State Fullerton. Let's give some snaps. Thank you, and so I've prepared some questions for Anjali and Ron. Um, and as we go along, there's that mic there. That's a space where anyone from the listening portion can choose to step up and be part of the sharing here. So if you have a question, a comment, you can come to the table. You don't have to like wave anyone down. Um, although if for access needs, if you're not feeling coming to the table, you can do that. And um, SK or Ray will bring the mic to you. You can also leave the seat at any time. And if someone else in, um, from listening wants to come up and take that seat, then they can, you can come and maybe like knock on the table. And um, if you have been occupying that sharing seat, we ask that you just graciously you know, say thank you and, and take your turn out and we can rotate like that. I'm here to facilitate and moderate the conversation. So I'm gonna support us sharing the space in a way that is respectful and grounded in Cal Sheikh's equity, diversity and inclusion values, yeah? Yeah. Yes, amazing. We're just going to kick it off. Anjali, what is capitalism and where did it come from? 
Thank you for that uh, epic question. It's a formidable starting point. Um, and thank you all for listening, by the way, and for the organizers of this event for initiating this important dialogue. Uh, so capitalism is, right, an economic system, but it's more than that. So it's also a form of social relations. What does that mean? It impacts the way that we relate. So to ourselves, first and foremost, to our labor, to what even counts as labor, as opposed to what doesn't get considered labor, to how we relate to one another, how we relate with the earth, how we relate with other species, how we relate more broadly. Um, so it's both an economic system, a form of social relations, uh, and where it comes from is a tremendously controversial question intellectually and politically. So there are literally thousands of different theories getting into beginning to answer that question. So it's really important to presence that humility moving forward with wagering a response. But we could historicize taking it back, say, half a millennia, right, to the English countryside as one starting point that many scholars historicize. So transitioning out of feudalism into, right, a particular form of relating that centralized, one, most people having to sell their labor to be able to survive. So whereas previously in the English countryside, folks could have gone into a forest and foraged, could have hunted, could have engaged in provisioning to get whatever we needed to be able to clothe ourselves, to be able to house our families, right? At this point in time, historically, right, those what some folks call commons were increasingly enclosed, as in landlords in large part and the land-owning class literally set up enclosures or fences around those common areas. So then there were obstacles that prevented everyday people from being able to access those means of survivance. So then what did we have to do in that point in history to be able to survive? Well, folks increasingly had to sell their labor for some kind of currency to then be able to write, it's an abstraction, sell, right, whatever that was, whatever you were doing, whether it was manufacturing, mining increasingly in other areas, um, for rent, for food, for clothing, shelter, whatever it might have been. There's a lot more that we can get into, as I'm sure you can imagine, but to suffice it to say for the moment, so right, starting off principally in the English countryside, then being exported for the first time to Ireland, actually, and then subsequently via colonialism to what's considered today by many the so-called global south or third world, and then the so-called new world, right, or Turtle Island, this continent we're on now. How has living under capitalism affected our lives? I just wanted to, I, I, I love that answer so much. I, I love this idea of like, where does capitalism come from? Who did this to us, right? Like, how do we right. hold them accountable? Right. Um, Tiara, you asked, how has capitalism impacted us? I think, um, when I think of that question, it brings me back to being uh, a little boy, actually. And I think it's, it's normal to uh, associate that question with, 
like when we first start to develop an understanding of what capitalism is. And I'm thinking of times that I was hungry, times that I was cold and trying to reconcile that those needs that are going unmet with this abundance around me. And uh, I think it's this really weird process growing up where with, when you do, when you grow up without means um, where you slowly get used to not having your needs met and um, it becomes like a sort of desensitizing force by the time we're adolescents and we're getting prepared to sell our labor and, and make our way into, into the labor market. I think we're used to subordinating our needs or having our needs go unmet um, across our whole lifetime, right? Across all of our communities, all of our loved ones. I think it's really hard to measure actually all the, all that suffering that takes place. Um, I would say capitalism has impacted our lives in this very sad way, this immeasurably sad way. And, and it's not, I think that's one side of the coin. The other side is right. Um, not just to, to try to think about what would it be like if we didn't have so much suffering as I think that's what the current goal is, right. Is to just have a more neutral type space where there's just not so much suffering, but then thinking of, well, what if we actually had human flourishing? Right. And, so I, I think capitalism capitalism has impacted us by by just amplifying uh, this suffering that's taking place, but also by stealing from us this flourishing that we ought to be able to experience as humans. And I'm, of course, curious, um, Anjali, about your responses to that and also want to remind folks that um, at any point you can um, go from active listening to active sharing, all of which is equally valued in the space, but just want to foreground that again. Yeah, I really appreciate what you just shared. So first off, naming it is incalculable, the impacts that capitalism has had, right, on the most intimate aspects of our lives. So again, not just in some kind of abstract way, the way that some of us have been educated to understand or rather miseducated to see economics as something in the abstract or esoteric without understanding the way that it impacts, again, the most personal ways that we understand worth, so self-worth and worthiness of others, value, purpose more broadly, success. Uh, and so capitalism also deeply impacts the most intimate aspects of ourselves, right? That propaganda seeps into our consciousness and has us thinking that it's our feelings, right? My heart's truth is wanting a Mercedes Benz, right? And my <laughs> somatic wisdom is telling me that I desire a Rolex. And inside, I really feel like that's me talking without even necessarily pausing to realize, wait a minute, but I can't divorce my feelings from a lifetime of propaganda in the corporate media, within mainstream educational institutions, and these other sites of our socialization. Um, so really, right, how has capitalism not impacted our lives, especially on this continent in the past 527 years, is a really important question for us to foreground and to not get fatalistic because there was a before and there is going to be an after guaranteed. So right, assessing that damage, that harm, so then we can vision our way and remember our way out of it. I just wanted to get in on the conversation. My, my name is Shahid Buttar, and uh, I'm a democratic socialist, and I'm the primary challenger to Nancy Pelosi for her seat in the House. And there are a couple thoughts I just wanted to add here. You know, one of them, when we talk about capitalism, 
it often gets conflated with the emergence of markets, for instance, but ultimately it is the rule of people by capital. And there's often a pretension that like wealthy people run the system, but the fact of the matter is like capital runs everything, including wealthy people. They might have it easier than the rest of us, certainly, right? But the idea that we have already given up control of our so-called democracy to a, a fiction that we created to facilitate exchange, I think is the ultimate rot. And just to like disaggregate some of the harms, atomization is one of the things mm -hmm. I think that yep. I heard Anjali yep. pressing on. You know, yep. and Marx yep. talks about yep. this, right. about how capital estranges people from one another, right. and it pits us against each other as agents mm -hmm. of competition instead of collaboration and inspiration mm -hmm. and community, mm -hmm. the yes. flourishing mm -hmm. that you're mm -hmm. talking about, right? Um, when we when we look uh, beyond the individual layer, in the current time slice, you asked the question very point blank: Is capitalism killing us? Yes, it kills us in. The, 50 different ways, right? It actually it makes money off killing us, yeah, too. Yeah, that's, right. Right. that's right. The military-industrial complex, the pharmaceutical-industrial complex, where they intertwine with Monsanto and Agent Orange, right? I mean, these are like, they're, they're inextricable. And, and all of the industrial complexes, what they lack is any recognition of the intrinsic dignity of human beings and life, right? And, and think about the, the species extinction wave that is being driven by our relentless plunder and pillage. And it's not like anybody wants it to happen capital makes it happen and so ultimately the last thing i'll say and i'll step away from the table is just that i think we are faced at the moment the question of what we do with capital it it is a question of whether or not we can democratize a country and a set of countries that think somewhat falsely that we are free because we're not free we are ruled by capital and so if we are to democratize intrinsic implicit in democratization is the overcoming the shrugging off of a stale failed system that will deliver our species to extinction if we don't liberate ourselves first. Thanks. Deeply appreciate you sharing. And um, to uh, I want to um, open our focus, our question around capitalism's effects to, um, we were just talking about like the earth, thinking broadly about where we live. We can think about the whole planet and also our homes, our neighborhoods. How is and has capitalism structured our relationships in those realms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would love to just really um, echo precisely some of what just came up about atomization or right hyper individualism, that divide and conquer mentality that is a military tactic, first and foremost. Um, so this is why taking it back, right, for folks that might be familiar with, right, theorizing in the realm of Marxism and socialism and the like, you hear so much emphasis on alienation of labor, for example. So that's one instance of this alienation that capitalism forces onto people where we're so often removed from the fruits of our labor. It's not like most of us are just engaged in, say, subsistence farming or commoning, so to speak, for the sake of ourselves and our families and our neighborhoods, but rather, right, how many of us are laboring for the sake of someone else's profit. So it's not even directly to support or to benefit what we believe in, our values, our principles aligned with what's important to us, right? Which we can see trickling down to be sure and growing up, right? from the challenges that so many of our neighborhoods are facing, whether it is environmental racism from extractivism, whether it is right increasingly polluted or toxic areas, um, whether it is more heavily militarized areas in particular neighborhoods and not others, right? The 
tetra-capitalist industrial development projects, whether it's dams, whether it's pipelines, whatever it might be, depending upon the neighborhood that are wreaking havoc on the earth um, and then on our bodies, which would, of course, be the case, right? Yeah, I think I think of it as this, to that exact point of the unsustainability of that kind of practice and, and thinking of how capitalism is always... if. For the capital, for for the profiteer, the financier, right? It's you're always so motivated by the very the very short term, right? And I think as capitalism becomes increasingly unsustainable, which we see, it seems all the all the time, every day. How can this go on? Um, just that 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 increasing focus from that side of of folks trying to make money to make money in this short term. And I think what we're crying for and what we need most is this long term vision right and and how can we have a sustainable way to live right in community in 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 perpetuity right to remain on the planet which is not how capitalism wants us to think right and so i think um it's it's useful to to try to and right everything is against us being able to take that stance and to take that long-term approach to our lives and and um to not think about the short term or or to not think about our most immediate needs right but I, i i do think when it comes to living in relation, living in community and finding the solution just to be able to kind of like holding your breath underwater and, and, and just popping up and, and taking a breath of air just to think about what, 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 what are we going to be, what is life going to be like in, in, in the future and, and can we have a future? And I think everybody wants to have a future too. So it's a good thing to bring folks together around. Yeah, so let's go there. Um, What are alternatives to this system? How can people who are interested get involved in creating and ensuring these futures? Yeah, I would say there's there's a role for every single human, right? And um, the alternatives come from, right, in the first place, rejecting this privatization and the individuality that capitalism forces on us, coming together with people, accepting that people are good, that, that, that they're, that re- rejecting, right, this, that there are, that we're strangers amongst ourselves, right, and um, I think that's an important role that is easy to work with, and, and um, will always make you feel good as you're doing it, and it's like um, a way to feel uh, nourished as you move, um, you know, uh, to, to, to be connected with each other is like this constant sense of, of nourishment and a radical act and, and easy to do every day. Um, and then I was thinking too, this idea that uh, I think the alternatives that are nearest to us in our fight against capitalism are actually still kind of rooted in capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. So like, uh, I, I think when you introduced me, you mentioned I was working on a campaign for universal healthcare. So we were imagining how can we win healthcare from capitalism like how can we have a more embedded liberalism that that has markets working just a little bit for people um and i think it's it's like a a stepping stone and a policy point and um you know things that we can guide people towards and i like to imagine that in in the shorter term we can win these kinds of systems that prove actually the market isn't going to the market isn't going to give us these things, but we can build these new institutions that take care of our needs and, and organize people around those needs um, and, and our human rights, uh, like health and housing. And then I like to imagine centuries, millennia, decades, time after that, uh, the fall of capitalism completely. But I, I do think it starts with 
like this slow reform or this this push for s- systems that will meet our needs. My name is J. Lawrence uh, from East Palo Alto, and I'm a property manager and landlord. And I have lots of uh, questions around um, how to um, re- relieve the suffering that capitalism is causing um, our communities. Um, and one thing that I think might be helpful is in terms of when we're talking about alternatives, not that I have solutions, but one way to think about what those solutions would, would be would be to think about trust. How do we build and grow trust within, with each other and with, um, with, with organizations? And, and how do we build those, um, those connections outside of the of frameworks like, for example, uh, argumentations that say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a great business person and you should bring your capital to me because I have already made m- this much money in XYZ work uh, or I have bought this, this number of uh, units of property and therefore you should trust me with your, your funds to, to um, provide you with even more support. That kind of argumentation, I think, is sometimes at center with the, the, the faulty reasoning that w- that like feeds, I think feeds capitalism. And I was wondering if, if either two guests have any thoughts about trust, and 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 its relationship to a way out of the cycle that we're in. Yeah, mm, absolutely. Yeah, appreciate what y'all both just shared in the question. Uh, you know, dovetailing with those couple of comments, um, one thing that I would advocate um, as an initial point towards moving closer to collective liberation is definancializing our imaginations, right? To really allow us to dilate our understanding of what's possible outside of the way that the marketplace so often dominates our capacity to even imagine how to relate, what's possible first and foremost. So moving beyond the mainstream constraints of what's even considered pragmatic, politically and actually daring ourselves to imagine in a way that is more expansive than that. Um, Because so often, right, people's revolutionary or radical imagination gets foreclosed or it gets limited in ways, right, that are sort of beholden to these very problematic and oppressive ideas of what's pragmatic or of what's practical, when in actuality, if we take seriously, right, this sixth, the great extinction, right, sea level rise, climate catastrophe, omnicide, the killing of all of the things, the only thing that's pragmatic right now is a revolutionary imagination. So keeping that front and center should be non-negotiable for us so that we don't, right, before even sitting down to a bargaining table, have already ceded the terms of the debate to folks that had no interest in our collective liberation to begin with. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about development without displacement. Yes. Is it possible? Are we against all forms of development? Do we want nothing to be built in the community? And I think uh, it actually is, you reminded me too, uh, our good friend with this question about trust, um, this idea of, well, what if we give the community some say over what, what gets built in the community? 
and I think it, it does, it, it comes down to this idea that we can't trust people to make their own decisions or, um, you know, we can't trust the community to, I think, I think that <laughs> it's, it's this really sad, unfortunate thing that we see so much is in these cities. And I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of our, the city I live in Oakland, uh, where we have, uh, you know, housing and, and, and development staff and a community development staff. And, you know, the, the, there's folks who work in the city who have, so few um, resources, right? And, and they're always trying to do more than they can as just these few people in the office and thinking of the enormous, limitless, just, again, almost immeasurable potential that we have when we connect to ourselves, right, in the community. What, can, what can't we achieve, mm-hmm. right? Like, what, what, we've done so many wild things as a people. Um, and so would it be possible to have... Uh, a grocery store in East Oakland, right? That uh, doesn't that doesn't uh, contribute to displacement. And I think the answer is yes. It's just you have to trust the community, let them into the process, give them some say, consult them, and and then there's this other piece too of well, development without displacement, or this other piece to development without displacement that says well we're not gonna necess- we're not gonna only develop to make money, right? That's not the that's. That's not the aim of, of development. And, and then this other side of that where not any sort of, it's not just any sort of development in the community that's good for the community. And I think this is another shift that we're seeing now that's good that gives me, that encourages me in my work is this idea that we're, we're coming maybe not to the end of the thinking, but to, the, to, to this place where we can really call that out and culpabilize that thinking and say, no, you're not just going to build whatever you want here. We've been through this we know what this kind of development brings. What we need is community benefits. What we need is jobs uh, for our local youth that, that this, you know, this project will give them, train them up and, and give them uh, means to survive and stay in the neighborhood. And, and so there is a way to center development on the needs of the community uh, and the people who are most impacted and have it serve the community. Um, it's, it's not the most kind, it's not mostly what we see, but it is possible and I think uh, something to fight for and so we are coming to towards the end of our oh no please come up please 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 please. (laughs) I'm just um, letting like letting folks know so there's not like an abrupt end um, that we are you know starting to wind towards a transition time when we'll give folks time to like stretch and um, do what they need to do before joining us for the show Um, would you like to to jump in my name is Tala I'm a glorified babysitter. Um, But I'm also a a Spanish bilingual um, teacher in the Monument Corridor for a school that's a Title I school. And so I'm listening to this through the eyes of a school teacher. And, you know, I know, um, like, the impact of the Internet, right? And, um, you know, I'm a fourth-grade teacher, and, like, even though my students are Title I, I'm still surprised how many of them have smartphones and um you know so they're they're sub they're subject to um i guess i just i'm thinking about how kids nowadays are being brainwashed you know because of course they play the free version of games so they're subject to all the commercials that are there and then you know a lot of their parents are um are immigrants and in Concord, you know, when it's really hot, like the place to hang out is at Sun Valley Mall, right? So a lot of my kids spend a lot of time at the mall. And, um, 
you know, I had the opportunity to live in the Philippines um, for two years, and I remember during the summertime in 97, the kids would fashion kites out of plastic bags and fly them in the fields. And now when you go there, you know, all the kids are playing video games and not running around very much anymore. But it makes me think, um, this is a little bit rambling, but you know, um, as a school teacher, I've had the last couple of weeks off and I've been completely glued to like van life videos and tiny home videos and, um, and then also came across this audiobook called Goodbye Things and this whole like minimalism thing. So, you know, when I, we, we talk about alternatives, I think those are like really highly watched videos, you know? And especially the goodbye stuff, the goodbye things video, where this guy gets rid of a lot of stuff and then ends up actually moving into a smaller space. You know, it makes me just think of um, what void are we trying to fill by, you know, as a, from a consumer's point of view with regard to capitalism. And whether you're indigenous or non-indigenous to the land, at some point there was trauma, right? The process of colonizing, the process of being colonized. And so just thinking about this void that we have, you know, um, this intergenerational post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, however that goes, this, this need to buy things, you know? I mean, that's, that's sometimes the aspect that when I think of capitalism, and I think of this book, Goodbye Things, that we don't really, you know, so when I think as a teacher, coming back in the fall, you know, trying to unbrainwash my kids to some degree so that they don't feel like they need to have this and that, and, you know, it's, um, I don't know, those are kind of my rambling thoughts while listening to you guys. Thank you. I think that's really well put. Me for the moment, I feel heartbroken that this is it's now that time to transition. But any final words from our guests today? Yeah, echoing exactly what was just offered, I would share in closing uh, just an invitation to reflect. So for those of us that are in the so-called global north, right, that do have consumer advertising directed towards us, um, when do we feel that impulse to consume unnecessarily, right? And how are we with differentiating between wants and needs? Because so often, right, it is, right, capitalism creating a problem within us and capitalist colonialism to be more specific capitalist colonial cis heteropatriarchal white supremacy to be extra specific right creating trauma dis-ease oppression within us that then wants to sell us the solution too and i'm using the term sell very intentionally right so when we're well how likely are we to unnecessarily consume so one invitation to reflect for folks that might be receptive to that because when we do that healing, right, so often folks that are deeply content or deeply happy don't feel that pull to so-called retail therapy, right? So for those of us that are, right, 
having this conversation in the settler U.S., right, that might not be, right, forcibly laboring in a mine in the so-called global south, even if we might have in the past or even if we have family members that are, right, keeping it really intentional about seeing where there might be invitations to heal, right, so that then we don't have that same impulse triggered within us. And as just a closing resource around that, there's a local organization called The Story of Stuff that has some fabulous animated videos, um, some of which are suitable, right, for secondary education that invite people to consider, right, excess consumerism in a place like the settler U.S. and inviting folks to remember that there's no such thing as throwing something away, right? That plastic bag might end up in the Philippines or in India, right, or in the ocean somewhere in someone else's backyard, but, right, for the rest of our lives to remember as we're consuming that nothing gets thrown away, right? It's just going into someone else's yard if it's not our own. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think for a final thought, it, it does touch on what you, you had shared with us too um, about this consumer culture and seeing your, the fear of seeing your students lost in their video games. Just this idea that when we engage in this work, it's, it's really it's about transformation. And I think transformation has a lot to do with healing and a lot to do with uh, the power that we get when we come together, you know, as even strangers even, right, in, in rooms. And that's kind of the work of a lot of the good organizations here tonight, Kazahusta and Tenants Together, to reach your hand out uh, to, to other folks and invite them in. And, um, you know, there's this, this process that happens when we, when we seek to transform all that's so awful about this world, and especially capitalism, um, where, you know, we, we, we reach our hands out to folks and then we invite them in and, and we develop these relationships and, uh, we ourselves are transformed by it, and and it's not just an empowering an empowerment that happens uh, when when we bring folks into that work. Uh, it's a friendship that happens. It's it's a relationship that happens. It's in over time. It's a community that happens, right? And it's those powerful communities that I think are really the the kryptonite, uh, <laughs> the the heat seeking. <laughs> well, no, never mind. I'm sorry, sorry for some of these metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> the solutions, right, that, that are healing, that, are, that will wake folks up, that will give them a feeling that they've not had before, that I think compels, compels them to get involved in the fight. And I hope that everybody will seek that feeling because it's everywhere. You can find it anywhere. I'm so grateful to be closing on a note of community and healing. Thank you all for being here today. Enjoy Good Person of Szechuan. Thank you again to Ronald and to Anjali and to each of the people who came to out to listen or to share at the table today. And to Amy. All right, and good night. Thank you, Tiara. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And special thank you to Kat Petru and Nikki Gervasio of We Rise Production for recording, producing, and editing this episode of Asides. And thank you again to our community partner, Causa Husta Just Cause, for working with us to create this opportunity for exchange. A bit more information on them. Causa Husta Just Cause builds grassroots power and leadership to create strong, equitable communities. Born through mergers between Black organizations and Latino organizations, they build bridges of solidarity between working class communities. Through rights-based services, policy campaigns, civic engagement, and direct action, they improve conditions in neighborhoods in the San Francisco Bay Area and contribute to building the larger multiracial, multigenerational movement needed for fundamental change. Find more information at cjjc.org.